Hello. This episode is part two of my conversation with architect Julie Firkin. In this episode, we're talking about bushfire community centres and we're also talking about working with architects in the recovery efforts and what it means to help someone after such a traumatic event as losing their home in a bushfire. Now, if you haven't listened to part one of my conversation with Julie Firkin where we discussed the bushfire home service, make sure you pause this podcast, head back and do that now and we'll be here when you get back, I promise. Otherwise, let's dive into part two now. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Welcome to season 12 of the Get It Right podcast called Rebuild and Build Better. This season includes a range of conversations with some fantastic experts and professionals, and we're diving into a range of topics related to rebuilding after bushfires, building or renovating in bushfire-prone areas, and more generally, designing and building more resilient homes. This season of the podcast has been inspired by one of our Undercover Architect course members who has over 20 years experience in disaster recovery and saw the need, given our recent summer bushfires in Australia, for a resource to help people rebuilding their homes after bushfire. He's been a great help to me in connecting me with information and people I can now share with you. You can see video versions of all of our interviews, as well as get a copy of the full transcripts, plus loads more helpful resources for your journey on the Undercover Architect website. Head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all the info you need to rebuild and build better. Now let's get on with the episode. So let me give you some background on Julie Firkin. For over 10 years, Julie Firkin Architects has been bringing creativity and problem-solving prowess to projects big and small in and around Melbourne. An award-winning firm headed up by architect Julie Firkin, they pride themselves on a personal and people-focused approach to architecture. Julie has a hands-on approach to all projects and she designs by visualising herself in the space which helps to create homes that are a joy to live in and spaces that are both practical and beautiful. Julie studied and practiced internationally and worked for several years at renowned practices and she brings this breadth of experience to her private practice, weaving a local approach and an international perspective into everything she does. While Julie Firkin Architects has the skills and expertise to deliver a range of projects from residential to commercial and small to large, Julie has a personal interest in both sustainable and bushfire resistant design. And as we spoke about in the last episode, her design for a bushfire resistant house was featured by the Bushfire Home Service following the Black Saturday bushfires in 2009. And as we'll talk about in this episode, Julie has also taught extensively on the subject. Now, I'm going to read something out from the article that I mentioned in our previous episode from Mark Magazine. Um, Julie was interviewed in that article by Marg Hearn and she said this and in this article remember was written in 2014 so the fires that Julie references in this article in the in her interview here are the 2009 Black Saturday fires. So Julie said in this article I'm always interested in innovation and in new solutions as opposed to architects who find a groove and do what they do well all of the time. It was obvious from media reports that people in bushfire areas had had 
a lack of community refuges to go to. In speaking to the CSIRO, I discovered that providing official community refuges is a contentious undertaking because authorities generally encourage people in high-risk areas to evacuate and with a refuge to go to, they might decide to stay. Nevertheless, new codes and standards for community bushfire refuges are being developed. And she goes on. Following the fires, some 52 locations were identified by the State Premier and the Chief Officer of the Country Fire Authority as being at the highest risk for bushfire. Those 52 locations became candidates for the development of new township protection plans and in setting up the design studio, this is the design studio that Julie did at Monash University, Julie selected Forest and she says it's a beautiful hamlet in the Otway hinterlands and this was the working site. So each student was actually asked to design a unique concept that would serve as a community refuge during the fire season and then as a public amenity at other times and they explored the broadest possible variety of building types. So we had town halls, schools, visitor centres and as part of the process the students actually sat in on a town meeting and sought input from a local council. Should the opportunity arise for that township to gain a refuge, both council and community will have access to 15 design concepts as a source of inspiration for further discussion. Now when I read this article and after speaking to Julie about her work with uh, the design students at Monash University, I really wanted to hear more about how Julie had worked with these students in exploring what bushfire community centres could actually offer as a strategy for building more resilient and defendable communities in the event of a bushfire. And I was also super keen, given Julie's experience uh, in New York after 9-11, which I mentioned in our last episode, um, she was involved in some of the community workshops that they had around recovery after 9-11. And then she's also been involved in 2009 Black Saturday fires recovery in her involvement in the Bushfire Home Service. So I was really keen to hear Julie's insights in and her views on how she saw architects could actually work with people who are recovering from such a traumatic event and how how people could really tap into the expertise that architects can offer and designers generally to help their rebuilding efforts and to help their recovery efforts generally. So let's jump right into my interview with Julie. In my research, it's been really um, interesting to see the different ideas that people have for living in locations that are threatened by bushfires. So, you know, uh, I've had conversations with people that have suggested that relocatable homes are a good solution because you can just physically remove the asset with very short notice um, and actually take the house away if a bushfire is threatening the property. Um, there's also been an idea that was, uh, I, I read with Dick Clark from Envirotecture suggesting that perhaps we should look at sort of lower cost, more disposable type homes that then it's not such a huge undertaking for somebody to have to rebuild that down the track. And, you know, all of these obviously can rely on some change of mindset for how we think about our homes and living in these areas. You've explored the idea of uh, uh, bushfire refuge community centres. And so I wanted to talk with you about this because this, um, this can be a fantastic idea, but I know it's a bit of a contentious topic as well, that there's this idea that communities who are regularly impact by, impacted by bushfires could have a bushfire community refuge centre. Why do you see this as a potential idea for communities to consider as part of their bushfire resilience plan? Um, well, the, the idea to look into community refuges came about after running two studios at university on um, eco-lodges and visitor centres in flame zones. 
Um, so Justin Leonard from the CSIRO had been a visiting expert, he was very generous with his time and he um, critiqued his, his student work and the subject of turning a building into a purpose-built refuge came up. Um, it's a contentious idea because residents of a community might think it's safe to stay when really the best thing to do would be to evacuate from an area. So we, they don't want to create a false sense of security because no, no refuge is going to be 100% safe. People have to get to it. There might be too many people and so forth. Um, but um, several refuges have been built. Um, there's a, a fire station in Blackwood. Um, there's several regional schools which have um, integrated refuges. So I think we just need to consider the site and the location. Um, some places are just very isolated and it can be really hard to evacuate, um, you know, if there's not many roads and a road gets blocked, for example. So uh, I definitely think um, in some places a, a refuge is a good thing to have. Yeah, it's an interesting thought because you think of the most recent fires across 2019, 2020, and what were communities were doing just by matter of force, you know, evacuating down onto coastlines or evacuating to areas that had some clearing around them. There's a documentary on Netflix about the Paradise Fires in the United States. And, um, you know, the strategy often there is quite different to how the Australian community and how the Rural Fire Service manage fires and evacuation plans and things like that. But you saw basically in the efforts of everybody trying to evacuate that roads just became too congested and the fire was moving faster than the traffic could. And so people just got stuck in these indefensible areas and just had to kind of navigate could they manage it in certain ways and then what that the the pressure that puts on the emergency services to help people through that process so I think that there's definitely what I'm learning from my research is how many layers there are to the strategies that we can employ to help communities be more protected more resilient and safer in bushfires and perhaps there are different I suppose, hierarchies to the threat levels or different hierarchies, like you say, in some isolated areas where perhaps the last point of, of egress is too compromised that, well, then the rule there is that everybody just has to go, whereas perhaps there's different threat levels. It's, it's really hard because, you know, obviously I'm not a firefighter and I don't, you know, you, you never know how quickly those situations can change on a dynamic basis. But, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely an interesting an interesting alternative philosophy and strategy, I think. And you actually worked with architectural students at Monash University in their design studio to create a design proposal for a bushfire refuge uh, community centre, which I think is, I mean, I remember my projects as an architectural student, something like this, which has such a, a real brief, a real platform, a real testing ground, would be an amazing opportunity as a design student. I, I can imagine... You learnt a lot through the process as well. Can you tell us more about that and, and why you led that and, and sort of what you saw that process doing for you and for the design students? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, it was a great um, project to do and the students were excited about it. Um, so I've run two studios on community refuges in the town of Forest, um, which is a beautiful small town um, in the Otways, but... It's very scenic with beautiful tall trees, but it's also highly vulnerable. Um, 
So I chose this location as it's a tourist destination for hikers and mountain bike riders. Um, and there's gourmet restaurants nearby. Um, and again, the students were excited to go there for a site visit. Um, there was this real, real question that needed investigating. Um, so that made it a great project to do. And so I asked them to come up with um, new hybrid building types that could function to benefit the community throughout the year, not just um, during the fire season. Um, so they came up with some interesting hybrids. So there was some looked at primary schools, some looked at a microbrewery, um, some looked at cafe or visitor centre type things. Um, and so obviously the process involved a site visit and, and they sat in on a community council meeting on the subject, which was fantastic. And then of course, um, took on critiques from the experts from the CSIRO and planning officers from the Shire. So it got a, a bit of a real world um, feel to it um, and some really interesting results. Did you see, I mean, were there things that surprised you during that process of sort of what the students came up with? Like, I think it's fantastic that you gave them the opportunity and exposure to that real world process. And I find that student projects can often be such a great testing ground for ideas because they're, you know, within a real framework, but not necessarily then hitting the, the, the coalface of budgets and economic planning and construction and all those kinds of things. You've got a little bit more looseness and... Uh, expansion to explore ideas and uh, come up with things that might not be arrived at within the constraints of a standard brief and a standard process. Did you did you see, like, for example, the community meeting, was there an appetite for this idea for a community centre and a, you know, a consideration that this actually could be a good solution or how did, how did you see the students sort of navigate that? Um, it, it was definitely an appetite. Um, the students at the community were very, very interested in the idea. It was interesting how many different ideas and how much different information is around on the subject, though. So um, there was, you know, some clashing happening at the meeting, um, which the students were, thought was very interesting. Um, and then, yeah, you do learn a lot. Uh, one of the, the other things that surprised me in the process was the students looked into best materials to use. Um, and one of the, um, the big uh, hurdles to get over when you're designing for bushfires is windows, which can be um, very vulnerable. But glass by itself is actually able to withstand very high temperatures yet windows perform poorly. And, and this is usually because um, they're framed by a material that expands at a different rate to the glass and that causes the window to shatter. Um, and obviously glass can also be struck by flying objects. So we did an experiment at the CSIRO on their open air testing rig, where we stuck just regular float glass onto a concrete frame, which was basically just a concrete panel with a hole. Um, and we used red silicon, which would allow the glass to expand and contract a lot more. And it performed well, because it, it got close to valve 40, which is very high heat exposure before it shattered. And yeah, it's not something that I would have done on a real project. <laughs> so it was fabulous to be able to, to do it and test it and see how it worked. Um, it's great doing that, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, um, I think to have the opportunity to have those testing grounds is obviously what moves things forward generally because, 
you know, like you say, you can't really do that on a case by case, you know, homeowner by homeowner basis. It's like, hey, can we just take a couple of months to go and dip into the factory and <laughs> test these four different window designs? And by the way, can you fund it? And you know, <laughs> so it's very tricky. But uh, yeah, it's it's quite it's quite. Uh, what I love is just that different thinking, that unconventional thinking that that studio obviously gave the opportunity to do and the curiosity of students and those different ideas. It's great that you brought that into the student group. And I'm sure that those students really hugely benefited in their, in their, you know, uh, long-term practices of, of what it looks like to explore and investigate ideas. In terms of that, that bushfire community center, I think that was there, what were what were you sort of seeing with the materials generally with the material selection that people that the students were sort of you know you spoke about the glass but what were some of the other materials was it kind of just generally pretty basic stuff in terms of metal cladding or that type of thing were there any other things that you sort of found out about material ideas for those bushfire community centers if you sort of wanted a good one-liner about it would be that um basically Materials that have ever been alive, like wood, <laughs> uh, aren't great. Like there are people who research certain types of wood that perform well, but as a, as a general rule, you're best off with um, either just mineral type building products. So metal, stone, dirt, those kinds of things. <laughs> and it can be quite low tech. Um, probably better not to try and rely on um, new expensive plastics and you know materials like that because they're not they're not well tested yet and can be expensive you know there there are answers that are, are low tech low cost and they can be beautiful so yeah i love that now um with the work that you've done and your involvement after the 2009 fires what do you actually see are the hurdles for homeowners and for designers working together as part of that you know rebuilding process after such a significant trauma um, and such a significant event i think well we touched on before i think um, one of the hurdles will be that um, there are a lot of architects who want to offer some pro bono assistance but we do need to be able to earn a living so we need to find a balance where we can either do just a limited scope of the project or we can continue but be paid for some of it, um, which um, doesn't sound fantastic probably to the homeowner, but um, it's just the reality. But what I think the other challenge, more in terms of design, is that we need to resist the temptation to do a complicated design. I think simple geometries tend to be more defendable um, and easier to keep clear of debris with less potential for burning embers to build up. And simple geometries can also be very elegant and very beautiful if they're carefully thought through and they're in the right place. So I think that, that resisting that temptation to embellish things is, is another big hurdle, I guess. How, um, how do you see that? Cause that's something that a lot of people say to me is like, Oh, you know, I've, I found out that I've got this bow 40 or this bow flame zone. And it seems like the most straightforward home that I can do is just a basic box. Do I really just have to build a box? Like, you know, like a box is, is, uh, is conceived to be sort of this terrible outcome. I think that 
uh, I mean, you look at how houses have developed over the years and particularly through the project home industry. And it seems like the more stepping, the more hips and gables, the more tricking up we can do of roof shapes and, you know, floor shapes and that kind of stuff, the better the house designers seem to be. But there's such basic classic and important simplicity that comes through that restraint and through that intention to design really well in a really simple form and geometry. How, you know, can, can you talk a little bit more about, cause that's, that's something I noticed with all the bushfire home um, service plans that were, a lot of them were very simple pavilions. There's an organization at the moment that's just started up called Shed Life that has created a prototype of sort of expandable modules that um, people are looking at building in around the Bega area as a rebuilding exercise. They've got sort of these components that go together at different price points and they're all very, these simple modular pavilions. How, you know, in terms of that design outcome, how I suppose it's a tricky question, but how do you see the benefit of keeping that simplicity from a design point of view, that it's not something that's boring? Like the results, you and I know from experience that the results of the ordered sense of classic kind of feeling and elegance of that space does volumes for your living experience and that kind of thing. How do you see that with a homeowner and a client who might not have, might have a different idea in their head about how the design needs to be? I think um, the important thing to remember is that it's the exterior envelope of the building that we're trying to um, keep simple and maybe simple is not the best word. And it doesn't have to be a rectilinear box. It can be tapered. Um, it can have a pitch, you know, a pitch to the roof. It can do interesting things in response to the site. But we're just trying to keep the envelope of the building as, as sort of a, a safe and almost like a slippery form so that any um, embers or debris just just load, glide right past and, and leave it, you know, standing. And when, you come, when it comes to the interior of the house, you can do more complicated things in there if, if that's what you want to do. But honestly, if you've got a beautiful site or, you know, a beautiful outlook, you can do amazing things with simple, elegant spaces. Um, so... Yeah, I think it's, it's something that the architect needs to work with the client to try and convince them um, that that's the way to go. Yeah, I think um, I know in my work with homeowners and the designs that I see a lot of the time, you can see there, you know, I talk a lot about the fact that there's the capacity inside 3D CAD tools to basically automate the roof development you know, so you can trace an outline around a floor plan and, and then input some data into the roof tool and pretty much go spacebar click and it dumps a hip and gable roof on whatever roof plan, you, whatever floor plan you've got and it figures out all the valleys and all the ridge lines in a way that just basically outsources a whole heap of thinking and design from the, the designer's point of view. And I think that's led us down the pathway of some pretty um, challenging outcomes in the kinds of designs that are created. And, and I think that understanding of, you know, I saw in the post 2019, 2020 a lot of conversation about the fact that uh, because, you know, the homeowner might have evacuated, but the fire service and volunteers were doing patrols down the street. And I remember reading about a woman that she met a stranger in the street, you know, standing, and she was, she'd basically returned to her property. She was standing out the front of a property and she was talking with some neighbours about how amazing it was. She could just see that there was one patch of burnt area on her property and she couldn't believe that the whole thing hadn't been lost. And she met this stranger who was a volunteer who had seen smoke coming from the back of her property 
due to an ember um, being lodged and had put it out then and there and managed to save the entire property as a result. And that ember attack, is it, is it just a case of, you know, when you talk about those slippery forms and keeping things simple, do, in your research, is that what you've seen is kind of the best outcome for preventing those ember attacks rather than, because I think a lot of people would think, well, if I just make the outside skin of my house completely resistant to anything that burns, then I'm going to be, it doesn't matter what shape it is. But how how do you align those sort of two, that thinking of the slippery form, which there's a terminology I love, slippery form versus the the impenetrable material choice. How how has that sort of played out for you in the research that you've done and the work that you've done? Well, I, I think both is the best. So having um, you know non-combustible materials in in a that slippery form, but the thing, the unfortunate reality is that buildings are put together from different elements, and there often ends up being gaps between when you put a window next to cladding, for example, or when the window opens and shuts, you know, it's got to shut smoothly and cleanly. So every change in material direction, material and direction and component is an opportunity for a gap where an ember can sort of get lodged. And even if your external skin is non-combustible, nobody has a house full of non-combustible things. We have rugs, we have, um, wooden furniture, and once uh, uh, we have even roof spaces with um, combustible things in it, and once it's basically fuel, <laughs> houses are full of fuels. Really, you want you don't want um, um, any embers sticking around and getting the opportunity to get into your house and smouldering and then starting a fire. Yeah, that's that's actually a great way of thinking about it. it. You might have made all of your efforts on the outside, but you've still got a house full of personal belongings, which are basically kindling for anything that manages to penetrate that that external skin. And the more corners and crevices you have, the more opportunities you have for gaps and those embers. I mean, that that's the thing that the embers are tiny. They, yeah. they don't have to be big to be something that will ignite in the right conditions and the right radiant heat. So thank you for letting me tease that out with you because I think it's a really worthwhile bit of thinking for people who may not have considered, you know, they may just be thinking about the exterior skin and, and all of the steps that they have to take to make that as durable and non-combustible as possible, but they're not thinking of all of the componentry that goes together more and more. The conversations that I'm having show what a set of puzzle pieces this is to think about and pull together and how having that right, the right expertise and the right advice to guide you through it is so essential and working with people who have a knowledge like yourself around how do materials perform, how does, you know, fire perform in these certain scenarios and what do we need to do to help the home be as resilient to that as possible is just fantastic. So that's great. Now, I read during my research that you were involved as a volunteer in the recovery efforts after September 11 in New York City, and you worked as a workshop facilitator in Imagine New York, which was a forum put together by the Municipal Arts Society. I'm just reading that to make sure that I get that all right. Now, um, you clearly have a personal drive to help. Like, it's beautiful. And, uh, you know, I think that when, like, when I read that, I thought, wow, this has gone back a long, long time for you that you've jumped into the fray and helped people through this scenario. What I'm particularly curious about is I've seen so many people in the design industry rally to help, but 
may not have any experience of what it's like to work with clients who aren't in this situation by choice. You know, most people, most clients that go to an architect are excited, perhaps nervous and overwhelmed, but, but generally excited about the prospect of building and renovating. Whereas people who've been through significant trauma and lost their home aren't in that situation by choice and will be a very, very different client as a result. What has driven you to offer your expertise, you know, to basically step into this process and, and say, hey, I'm here to help and I want to help and, you know, then use your expertise in the ways that you can through these different forums and opportunities? Well, I was uh, driven to offer my own services for Imagine New York because I was living at New York at the time of September 11 attacks and I was arriving at work when it happened, so I saw it with my own eyes. By the afternoon, everyone in Lower Manhattan had just been instructed to walk north. <laughs> there was no public transport. People were throwing away their high heels and buying um, flip-flops, thongs. And so I could understand that feeling of chaos and helplessness. And it actually offered, it actually helped me to offer some practical help. Um, felt like I was doing something useful. <laughs> After these bushfire events, it's also a time when people need that help and I'd, I'd love to be able to do something practical. And it's also a time when people can be open to rethinking the status quo and making, and this makes a design project more interesting and more challenging. So, you know, it's, it's a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're sounding very humble about it, but it's, <laughs> it's actually, I think, there's lots of people that would go, well, I went through it too. So I'll wait for the help to come. Whereas, you know, you've actually gone, well, I've been through it. So I have a level of empathy and understanding that will be an asset during this time. So it's, it, I'm sure that you were a huge help in the work that you did. Well, thank you. <laughs> I hope so. And I suppose um, just to throw a red herring at you, when you think about the opportunity to work with somebody in this way and to help them rebuild after they've lost their home and the experience that you've had in working with people through something like Imagine New York. You know, I've, I've had conversations with lots of people that were involved uh, very immediately in the recovery efforts after the 2009 fires in Victoria and spoken with Rob Gordon, who's a psychologist that works with the Red Cross in um, sort of visiting communities and helping them understand and navigate the, the psychological piece of recovering after this process. How do, you see, how do you see your role as an architect, I suppose, being able to help people not just rebuild a home, but rebuild their life. Like, how do you see, how do you see that you can work and what would you suggest to architects in terms of working empathetically with people who are recovering from losing their home, losing, and, and what that loss represents to them, to then be able to make those next steps and be able to think differently about what might be ahead for them, to be able to open up the opportunities of what might be ahead for them? I think that's, that's a huge question. I'm not sure I know the, the answer or anything, but um, I guess what I would suggest is um, I think in the, the workshops that I helped facilitate, it seemed to be kind of almost a healing process for people to do, do some sketching or just discuss their vision of, of how things could be. Um, so I think that, that could be a, sort of a helpful and healing thing um, for the client to have some real input into what their next home's going to be like. 
maybe that's that's the best way to put it. So just try to try to involve the, the client um, and, and let them put something of them, themselves into it. Yeah, that's lovely. That's a very succinct response to my very long-winded question. But it's, uh, yeah, I think that um, I think that that process of collaboration is always key in a successful project outcome. Um, and now more than ever, with somebody who is needing to heal from the loss of a life that they'd imagined um, and move towards a, a different life with a, a new home and you know a, a new process and a new situation um the collaboration will be incredibly key so that they have some sense of ownership of the vision of you know what they're creating for their future so um julie i can't thank you enough it's just been lovely to uh tap into your expertise and your knowledge and to hear those pearls of wisdom about some really specific kind of points of how to think about building in a bushfire prone area and um, for you to share your experience with us. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. <laughs> thank you. How did you find that? Did you find that helpful? I really do hope so. Now, be sure to get in touch with Julie. Let her know as well. I always love it when people who've listened to the podcast, when the gorgeous podcast listeners get in touch with people who've been interviewed on the podcast and I get emails from them and say, hey, I had somebody reach out to me that heard me on the podcast. It's really lovely to to see you connect and um, let them know what you thought of their conversation and if you found their information helpful. So you can find links uh, for Julie's website and for uh, to be able to see the projects that Julie Firkin Architects have done I'm going to pop a link to their website in the resources so make sure that you check that out and you can get in touch with them there in the next episode I'll have Andy Marlowe and Dick Clark from Envirotecture so they're specialists in sustainable design and also in passive house as well They've done some fantastic projects in bushfire prone areas. They've done some fantastic projects generally, and they have a huge amount of expertise and experience, and they're really passionate about building sustainably and affordably. They've got so much knowledge about how you can build and renovate in a sustainable and affordable way, even when needing to be bushfire resistant. And they've also launched a new business called Passive House Design and Construct. And this is about helping homeowners who want to create passive house certified homes but basically be able to manage their budget work with a trusted design partner through the process and then also work with a passive house certified builder and be able to work in that collaborative way to get that result in their specific location so be sure that you tune in for our conversation it's going to be a really good one Remember to head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild. We've got all that we're sharing in the Rebuild and Build Better series. And bookmark it, share it with your friends, share it with anybody who needs the help. Um, Keep checking back in on it because it's going to grow as an online hub for anyone who's rebuilding after bushfires or who's wanting to build better and more resilient homes. I've had lots of people getting in touch with me who uh, have either just recently bought property that's in a bushfire, that has a bushfire overlay on it, or they know that their property property has a bushfire overlay and they haven't started their renovation or building project yet and so all of this information is really helpful for those who are building new whom, um, but also those who are rebuilding as well. As always thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time bye.